0: Tonight's episode 50, The Big Five O, finally, on March twelfth, 2015. I'm Carolyn Yeager.
1: And I'm Ray Goodwin.
0: And so, Ray, why don't you give us the uh, opening little gambit tonight and tell us what you're up to and how you feel.
1: Well, I appreciate everyone who joins us for this study, and uh, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm looking at what we've got left in the material, uh, Carolyn, and it looks like maybe mid to late April we'll be finished with this. So it's going to be a bonus before you know it. And it's been so enjoyable, and I'm just uh, I'm glad that we got folks tuning in here and uh, listening to what we have to say. I really enjoy your timelines and your commentary, and I'm sure the listeners do too. And I think tonight's lesson, as usual... I mean, it's no different from all the rest. It it is really, really a uh, good stuff, and uh, insight into the Fuhrer. And and after all, that's what this uh, study is all about: Hitler's table talk. And that's exactly what it is. And so, I'm glad to see episode fifty come tonight.
0: Well, you know, I was thinking about it that uh, I didn't notice any big, very outstanding things in tonight's sections, but I think that there's a lot that's really interesting, like you say. And I think we could kind of look at some things a little finer, maybe look at some finer points about about uh, the Fuhrer and so on when it's like this, when we don't have something so so major. But I might be forgetting something because there's there's quite a bit uh, quite a bit of different topics that we're going to be covering.
1: Yeah, and I will certainly agree with that. Uh what struck me about tonight's readings, Carolyn, is uh very very negative feelings about Kaiser Wilhelm uh the 2nd, mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: uh
1: who was a yeah. man during World War 1.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, then there are some uh, sexual references that are are quite interesting uh tonight coming from the Führer.
0: That's and, right? Uh,
1: se- yeah, and uh, and so, uh, you know, like I say, it's always new territory with that fellow, uh, yeah. and, and it's always wonderful. It's With every page of Hitler's table talk, my admiration and wonder for this man grows, and I'm hoping the same is felt by those folks who tune in with us.
0: Well... I I agree with I feel the same way I'm becoming a, a, a huge Hitler fan and i never wanted to use that word but having Scott I keep bringing up having, but he started a, a, Hitler, a Adolf Hitler fan club on his pal talk on a pal talk channel he likes to have these he likes to have these talk groups on pal talk and he's got it listed up at his on his uh, website his blog. And I told him, I was talking to him last night, and I told him I thought that was a a really good name. I really liked it when I saw that. And I would like to join it and engage in it, but I said I just don't even, I don't have time to spend time chatting over things like that. But I bet bet it gets to be pretty interesting. Anyway, we are all fans of uh, Mr. Hitler for sure, so we, we have to admit that. We can't deny that. That's but exactly we try to right. be we try to be uh objective here, and we're going to be talking about Wilhelm the second right in the first section here, so I don't have any That's timeline right. for the twentieth. I think we've been on the twentieth already for a while, <laughs> so uh, we can just get started
1: okay with uh <clears throat> a little note to that I mm-hmm. think that there is a discrepancy uh and we will come to it about the date on one of our entries i uh, and, and I'll note it when we come to it, but for okay. August 22nd, there are two entries for evening. Oh. Two entries designated as August 22nd in the evening, and what follows those two, Carolyn, is an entry for August 25th. So it jumps three days. So I'm thinking the second one that says August 22nd evening, since uh, it, it, uh-huh. it's uh, the same time period, that it probably should have been 23rd or 4th. It's not it's well, a minor maybe, thing.
0: Maybe, but it's also the case that sometimes uh the evening lasts for a long time and uh yeah, and uh, he starts positive. out again. You know, they move, they go yeah. sit down in a room somewhere and and to relax yeah. and then uh they start talking again. So it's we really can't say, can we? That's exactly. Right. I don't know you how how, how important that. it is, but it might affect uh the timeline. it? right. I think? I, I
1: think it's <laughs> yeah. quite minor, but uh yeah. anyway, Okay, Okay, the 20th of August, 1942, Evening. Dangers of over-mechanization of an army. God favors the big battalions. Frederick the Great, an exceptional case. American civilization. Bismarck and Wilhelm II. The ignominious behavior of the Kaiser. Insignificance of German potentates. Mussolini air pilot the Fuhrer says the opinion is repeatedly expressed that war should ideally be waged by a highly trained technical force with a maximum of mechanization and a minimum of manpower these theories however are demonstrably false because practice has shown that any one arm acquires its maximum efficiency only when used in collaboration with other arms The various weapons are indeed so interdependent that success in war is achieved by the skillful and combined use of all of them. Even in ancient days, war was never waged with one arm alone. The saying that God favors the big battalions is not without significance. Without the requisite force, nothing can be accomplished. To think otherwise is to try to make a virtue out of necessity. If this were not so, the smaller peoples of the world would not have been the victims of oppression throughout history. It was only because they anticipated war in the West, which would give them the chance swiftly to seize the Baltic states, that the Russians stopped the war with Finland. The history of war can furnish not one single instance in which victory has gone to the markedly weaker of the combatants. The nearest approach to it is the case of Frederick the Great, who had luck in defeating by superior skill adversaries who were numerically slightly superior. It makes me laugh when I think what consternation would be caused among us humans if the news suddenly announced that an interplanetary ship had landed in America. All our earthly little wars would stop immediately. American civilization is of a purely mechanized nature. Without mechanization, America would disintegrate more swiftly than India. Actually, in America, the European has reverted to becoming nomad. What a pity that the film The Emperor of America did not end by pointing the moral lesson. Trinker has produced two films which are masterpieces of their kind. Mountains and Flames, and The Rebel. In these he was beholden to no man, but in his other films he was financed by Catholic interests. A question which is frequently put to me is, should we now release the film Bismarck? I know of no more trenchant criticism of the Kaiser than that given in the third volume of Bismarck's own memoirs. When I read it, I was appalled, but... Even Bismarck's criticism is not as damning as are the speeches of the Kaiser himself. Bismarck shows how the eyes of the whole people were fixed on the Kaiser, and what great things could have been accomplished had there been a monarch endowed with more tact, more human charity, and a greater readiness to accept the responsibilities of his exalted position. Instead, The last of the Kaisers did everything possible by speeches which were as tactless as they were stupid to alienate the German princes with a complete disregard for the consequences. It was the quintessence of stupidity on his part as a youthful monarch to treat all the other princes as mere vassals. I might as well adopt the same attitude towards Horthy and Tiso, that's T-I-S-O, Not content with that, the young fool writes to the ruler of the Pacific and signs himself the ruler of the Atlantic. The acts of an imbecile. Can you ever see me signing myself the ruler of Europe? Had Wilhelm II been a monarch of character and vision, had he possessed the virtues of his grandfather, he would have kept Bismarck close to his side. He would have won the affection of his people, and social democracy could never have become the power it did become in Germany. The dismissal of Bismarck undoubtedly shattered the nation, and not only the fact uh, the fact itself, but the manner in which it was accomplished. For Bismarck, after all, was the symbol of national unity. The irresponsibility of that young man is past comprehension. On the day he dismissed Bismarck, he gave a ball. In his whole attitude, the heritage of his Jewish ancestry comes out in the completely cynical laugh of self-control, which was characteristic of him. A mighty wielder of the bombastic word, but a coward indeed. A saber-rattler who never drew sword, though God knows he had opportunities enough and as vain and as stupid into the bargain as the vainest and most stupid peacock when i recall the german potentates i find each one more futile than the other i make one solitary exception the czar of bulgaria he was a man of infinite wisdom inexhaustible tact and unique force of character had we had a man like ferdinand on the throne of germany the First World War would never have been fought. I shall never in my life make a present of an airplane to anyone. A plane is a plane, and I detest those people who suddenly go all sporting. The ordinary man does not suddenly jump on the concert platform and sing. I hate all that type of bravado. The Duce is very important in this respect. He's very foolish. He's not the type of really? Very fool- yeah, very foolish in this respect. Mm-hmm. He's not the type for bravado. People sometimes ask me why I play no games. The answer is simple. I'm no good at games, and I refuse to make a fool of myself. Adolf Mueller once taught me to drive a car. Then I became involved in politics and landed in Gaul where it would have given the Bavarian government the greatest joy to keep me, permanently. In any case, I cannot see myself driving for twelve hours and making a speech at the end of it. That would be just silly exhibitionism. I have only to look around the gentlemen of my acquaintance. There's always one of them with a black eye or a broken leg. Furtwängler, for example suddenly had the wonderful idea of going in for skiing. The man who, with his genius as a conductor, fascinates thousands of women, suddenly had the desire to shine as a skier. Nothing less than a slalom race will satisfy him. Off he starts, and then crash, and there he lies in a sorry mess. Famous people must guard against making themselves ridiculous in spheres other than their own. Bismarck, when asked to go swimming, said I think I can swim, but from me people would expect something of which I know I am not capable. I'd rather not. The Duce might as well might well take this to heart. It always makes me nervous when he pilots a plane. His job is to steer the Italian ship of state. When I think of the numbers who have lost their lives in this fortuitous fashion, if any and everyone could pilot a plane, then those who adopt the job as their last profession are bloody fools. Turning to Belo Okay, tell me, Bello, Kessel- let,
0: Let's make it real clear. That's Nicholas von Bello, who is his Luftwaffe adjutant and had been from good. 1937 to 1945, so he was always around most of the time.
1: Good, good. Turning to Bellow, tell me, does Kesselring fly himself? Bello, only a Storch, S-T-O-R-C-H, not a big plane, the Fuhrer. He would do much better to leave all that to p- proper pilots. <laughs> so, anyway, that's the end of that little section.
0: Well, it's really interesting.
1: Yeah, um, certainly. And uh, before we
0: get started you know, on were... Wil, on Wilhelm, uh, let me just say about uh, what he mentioned. Yeah. Uh, Tranker, T-R-E-N-K-E-R. I never heard of him. Uh, he said he produced two films, which were masterpieces, and he named them Mountains and Flames and the Rebel. Um, so I looked him up, and yeah, sure enough, there was uh, Louis Louis Tranker. Born in 1892, and he died in 1990 at the age of 97. He uh, was born and always lived in South Tyrol of German, parent, of German parents. So he, they must make some pretty healthy people down there. And uh, Mr. Trecker served as a pilot in World War I before he embarked on his film career. He made his acting debut in 1921 in Arnold Fank's Marvels of Ski, and then in the early uh, 1930s, he became a film director and writer. His first film was Mountains in Flames in 1932, and it was inspired by his wartime experiences. Well, I thought that's an interesting little bit of uh, trivia that, uh, you know, comes up in here, and most of you yeah, we don't well, know who he's talking about. Right. But did he well, like well, this man's. Uh, films two, the two films he thought Yeah, yeah and
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that because you know it, it caught my eye when he says a question which is frequently put to me is should we now release the film Bismarck mm-hmm. uh, and this is obviously something that's been filmed and is waiting is kind of on hold uh, it's just been finished probably and should uh, should we release this and then he goes on to say you know because in uh Bismarck's own memoirs, there's one hell of a lot of heavy criticism against Kaiser Wilhelm II. And, uh, but then he he goes on to qualify by saying Bismarck's criticism is not as damning as are the speeches of the Kaiser himself. So, you know, he had to weigh in his mind, is this a good time to release this film to the German public? And uh, And then he goes on to talk about it. But I thought that uh, interesting, and then at the end of the paragraph on that, Carolyn, this is something that kind of threw me, and I'd like to hear your guess or your take on it. Uh, he talks about, uh, uh, you know, did, about did uh, <laughs> well, yeah, he did that, which which was something, but but he talks about uh it was the quintessential uh, quintessence of stupidity on his part as a youthful monarch to treat all the other princes as mere vassals. I might as well adopt the same attitude toward Horthy and Tiso, or Tiso. (laughs) Now, when he says, not content with that, the young fool, of course, meaning Wilhelm II, writes to the, in his quotation, ruler of the Pacific, and signs himself ruler of the Atlantic. The acts of an imbecile. Can you ever see me signing myself the ruler of Europe? Well, I've thought and thought, who was he talking about when he wrote to and, and called it the ruler of the Pacific and then signed himself ruler of the Atlantic? And this was obviously uh, probably during World War One, or or maybe slightly before it. And so I thought, well, who could he talk and, uh, be talking about ruler of the Pacific? Uh, Japan, you know, they were on the rise at that time uh um, was it the japanese emperor uh was it an american uh, president or something you know because i thought who could who in the world could he be addressing with that particular title and it's only, you know it's only a guess on my part i doubt he would have written such to an american but then again you know maybe he was talking about uh, say woodrow wilson because that would have been the time and America was making expansion into that area. So I just wasn't sure about that. It it was an interesting thing to think about.
0: Well, I think there's something about it on his Wikipedia page, but I haven't found it yet, Um, but I saw something mentioned that it could have been. I thought that was pretty funny, but I didn't try to figure out who the ruler of the the Pacific was because I couldn't come up with anyone like you, you know. I thought, no, well, I, yeah, didn't know I who that would be? I don't think it's uh, any any Asian person. I think it's no, uh, I wouldn't either. Uh, you
1: know. Well, so, while you're but, reading
0: further on, I'll I'll look here some more. But so uh, okay, we don't I, waste time. So right. what else did you want to say about th- this? Okay,
1: I wanted to say this. Uh, when he was talking about the German potentates, he found each one more futile or futile than the other. And he made one solitary exception, the Tsar of Bulgaria. He was a man of infinite wisdom, inexhaustible mm-hmm. tact, and unique force of character. Had we had a man like Ferdinand on the throne of Germany, and this was most significant to me. He says, the First World War would never have been fought. And when I'm reading that quote, uh, Carolyn, I'm expecting the word L-O-S-T at the end of it. But it was, you know, had we had a man like Ferdinand on the throne of Germany, the First World War would never have been lost. But, Mm -hmm. he says, would never have been fought. To me, that was very powerful that he didn't say lost. It, to me, makes a uh, a better impression of him all around. We would have never fought this war had we had a leader with the qualities of this uh, Ferdinand of Bulgaria. Right. And, uh, And, you uh, know, he's brought
0: him up before. And this Ferdinand uh-huh. is a German. He's a German, and uh, but he became a Tsar of Bulgaria. He became the head of Bulgaria, yeah. and so then he acted like a Bulgarian, and so on. So that's why he says we're calling German potentates. But right. yeah, I guess he thinks he would have been he would have been such a good leader that he would have avoided. He would have done different yeah. things, did it differently, would have avoided been able to avoid that war maybe he would have yeah, had better right. relations with the uh, with Russia and so on although you know uh, I feel I feel for Wilhelm II because he had he, he might not have been up to the job but he he had a lot of complexes over the com, the his relatives in the British royal family and exactly then he was right. also related to the Nicholas wasn't it nicholas then of uh yeah, Russia Star nicholas. so he and and uh he was the British, according to him uh the, his British relatives who were no higher and some of them not as high as, as his rank you know as as when he became emperor of german of the german empire right. didn't treat didn't treat him as he thought they should, and they so you know they kind of picked on him. And it might have—he may have made more out of it than it was. He, he may have been—may have been overly sensitive, but in, that was still true. And so he was tr- always trying to show that, you know, hey, I'm the—I'm the big guy here, you know, and I'm more important than you, and I'm this and that. And maybe he just took too much of a tough line. It's too bad. Uh, that, but th- this shows that you know at one time Hitler would have been uh, was very supportive of Wilhelm II back during the first war. Exactly. Well, you know when it was just uh, you know he was patriotic and all of that, and they all were, and he it's supported certain. the monarchy and so on, and then he slowly changed until he uh, completely dismisses uh, inherited. Yes, he totally lost like confidence in him. Yeah, and well, he doesn't believe in this whole business of coming down the line of inheritance and you don't get you know, right. the best people so by this point he's just really down on on Wilhelm it sounds kind of mean but it, Wilhelm did do all these silly things and it is stupid to okay. write all yourself uh what was sure. that the, the ruler of the um, emperor
1: of the pacific Atlantic but,
0: the, I mean Atlantic I'm sorry but yeah but you ruler. know
1: uh uh Carolyn to me in all these years and what I read about Germany, World War One, and, and the Kaiser and everything—everything everything about him—I was all, uh, either favorably disposed to or ambivalent. But I never had any negative thing
0: no, uh, about even him until now, I read I, this. Well, yeah, I think Hitler's you know, a little mean to him. I, I, I did a well, show on I can this.
1: understand. And uh, you know, and, as and, a fighting yeah, man in the trenches. Well, I mean, you know you.
0: Hitler kind of goes you overboard. you got to look at it from
1: his perspective.
0: Yeah, but he kind of goes overboard because now that's his position. So now he just expresses his position very forcefully. Sure. And he's not trying to, because he's not making this public or anything, he's not trying to be more uh, even-handed about it or anything. He's just going after it uh, in this private conversation here. You know, I don't think it's good to put down Wilhelm II so much at all because that just feeds into the into what the enemies want to do, the enemies of Germany. He did some good things, and he tried. He tried hard. I, agree. I don't think yes. he was quite as stupid, as Hitler is saying. Uh, he yeah. wasn't stupid, in fact. Uh, he, he.
1: Well, a fighting man would see him that way because of the way the war turned out. Uh, that's, you know, I kind of feel uh, that his perspective, Hitler's perspective, was certainly not the same as ours uh being a fighter man in the trenches and and how well the things and then turned, you know out.
0: he talked before how how highly he thinks of uh Ferdinand of Bulgaria he thinks he was one of the mm-hmm. best people around at that time and since Ferdinand was a German he you know would he he thinks uh, Wilhelm doesn't look good com- in comparison and uh Germany should have had Ferdinand as the as its king and then things would have gone better but But he he also, he must be in a mood tonight. He also is uh, criticizing the Duce a couple of times here. Yeah, that's
1: right. And he goes
0: on with some more of it later on, if we get there. (laughs) Indeed,
1: he does. Uh, Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) it's pretty bad. (laughs) So, uh, well, not, not really the Duce, but the Italians is what he talks about later. Well, you know, we do have to remember that he's just like if we're sitting around talking privately, with our friends and so, we're going to say a lot of things that we feel. Sure. And it's not that we don't believe these things, but we wouldn't necessarily uh, say them if we were making a public report. Right. But in any way, that's – okay, where else so can we we'll go on?
1: Okay.
0: All right. 21st uh, okay, I've got of a timeline. August. I've got this timeline. It's all in okay. the in the uh, Pacific. Japanese counterattack at Henderson Field. Remember when they said last week that they had landed at – The Allies had, Americans or something, had landed at Henderson Field. Or they had at Henderson Field. Yeah, well, there was uh, the Japanese counterattacked. In another foray at the Tenaru or Ilu River, uh, many Japanese are killed in a bonsai charge. So, that's all. And then this General uh, Gurkha that you're going to say is a special guest yeah. here. Um, I looked him up, and he, you um, know, he was there because uh, he had retired in June 1942. Well, this is August. So I guess uh, he was, you know, visiting or something. But he just retired, and he was age 61. And he died a few months later. He died in December seventh, nineteen 1942. So he didn't live very long after his retirement. He was only 61. And then I saw a picture of him. He was kind of a wiry old guy. That's it. Okay,
1: the 21st of August, 1942, midday. Special guest, General Gurkha. The Volkischer Beobachter, the Baltic Barons, the Genealogical Maniacs, Princes and Grooms, Marriage in the Country the girls of the labor service, the broad-minded Bavarians. Events have shown that journalism demands a style of its own. Real journalistic jargon came into being, I think, in the volkischer Beobachter during our electoral campaign in 1932. Rosenberg feared a landslide. I'm quite sure that at the time he despaired of humanity, and his contempt for mankind was only increased when he found that the more he lowered the intellectual level of the journal, the more sales increased. He ought really to have called the paper Muncher Beobachter, Baltic edition. And the footnote there says Rosenberg himself was a Balt, as were several of his elaborators. At the beginning, the Volkischer Beobachter sailed on so high an intellectual plane that I myself had difficulty in understanding it, and I certainly know no woman who could make head or tail of it. Rosenberg insisted on this extremely high level. At that time, where the leading article now appears, he gave us deeply philosophical treatises written by professors, and mostly on Central Asia and the Far East. During the Reichstag fire, I went, in the middle of the night, to the offices of the Bolkeshire Bellbachter. It took half an hour before I could find anyone to let me in. Inside, there were a few compositors sitting around, and eventually some sub-editor appeared heavy with sleep. He was quite incapable of grasping what I was telling him, and kept on repeating, "'But really, there's no one here at this time of night. I must ask you to come back during business hours.' "'Are you mad?' I cried. "'Don't you realize that an event of incalculable importance is actually now taking place?' In the end, I got hold of Goebbels, and we worked until dawn preparing the next day's edition. I often find it difficult to get on with our Baltic families. They seem to possess some negative sort of of quality and, at the same time, to assume an air of superiority.' of being masters of everything that I have encountered nowhere else. Nevertheless, I was very relieved in 1941 when we received the list of German families in the Baltic states to find, included in them, all our old friends of the 1920s. One very lovable trait is their marvelous spirit of solidarity. As they have for centuries been the rulers among an inferior race, they are not unnaturally inclined to behave as if the rest of humanity were composed exclusively of Latvians, constituting as they do a minority. They were all intimately acquainted with each other and kept themselves rigorously apart. For my own part, I know nothing at all about family histories. There were relations of mine of whose existence I was quite unaware until I became Reich chancellor. I am a completely non-family man with no sense of the clan spirit. I belong solely to the community of my nation. The Balts are wont to gauge the intelligence of everyone with whom they come in contact by the yardstick of his being the nephew of Count this or Princess that. I, on the other hand, have to think twice before I can remember my cousins or my aunts. To, see, to me, the whole thing is uninteresting and futile. One of our party members was most anxious to show me the results of the laborious investigations he had made into the history of his own family. I cut him very short. Pfeffer, I said, I am just not interested. All that sort of stuff is a matter of pure chance." Some families keep family records, and others do not. Pfeffer was shocked at this lack of appreciation. And then there are people who spend three quarters of their lives in research of this kind. Pfeffer was, however, most insistent in his desire to show me that his wife, at least, was a descendant of Charlemagne. That, I retorted, must have been the result of a slip. A faux pas, which can be traced back to Napoleon, uh, would be splendid. But of anything else, the less said, the better. Really, you know, it's only the women who transgress who deserve any praise. And that's an important sentence, so I'm going to read it again because it applies to what follows here. Really, you know, it is only the women who transgress who deserve any praise for many a great and ancient family owes its survival to the tender peccadillo of a woman. The original slip is, of course, decently disregarded, particularly as its motive was not to infuse new blood, but was usually the result of an animal attraction for some virile being who, quite incidentally, became the instrument for restoring new health into the veins of a degenerating family. Think what would have happened to the German princes if little things like this had not happened. Salkil told me a very curious fact. All the girls whom we bring back from the Eastern ter- territories are medically examined, and 25% of them are found to be virgins. That couldn't happen in Upper Bavaria. Contrary to popular belief, it is wrong to suppose that virginity is a particularly desirable quality. One cannot help suspecting that those who have been spared have nothing particular to offer. And what is popularly said on the subject of Christian virgins, I hesitate to repeat. When in the marriage ceremony the priest mentions virginity and the holy bond of matrimony, one always sees some of the lads grin and nudge each other. Quite a number of them probably know this Christian virgin inside out. In point of fact, there is no great harm in this, and it is explained by the rural custom of matrimonial trial. The rural districts are so poor, that the hiring of any servants is out of the question, and if there are no children, disaster overtakes them. From the age of 12 or 13, the boys have to work all day, and so the custom of trial has sprung up. It is only when a lad prolongs the period of trial that, uh, too long that he is looked upon askance and is expected to marry the girl. Generally speaking, one must admit that there is no more primitive instinct than love. The unfortunate thing is that the results of these customs are not outstandingly satisfactory. It is in the small towns that one finds the best blood, for it is there that the people lead the healthiest lives. In the country, the peasants are bowed down with work and burdened with a hygienic system that is bad in every way. But at least in the country they have a breath of fresh air and that blows when the girls of the labor service, clad lightly in their sports costumes, descend on the farms as voluntary workers. All this to the great indignation of the gentlemen of the cloth. Formerly the country girls, and particularly the more well-to-do among them, wore at least six petticoats. The more the better." as a sign of a girl of substance. Now there has been a complete transformation, and a healthy wave has swept over the whole countryside. Munich is a particularly tolerant town in this respect. When I arrived there from Vienna, I was astonished to see officers in shorts taking part in a relay race. Such a thing would never have been tolerated in Vienna. Incidentally, I have heard of a priest in Bavaria being reproached for having had an affair with his serving maid. On the contrary, the whole community hugs itself with glee. He's a young lad, our chaplain is, they chortle. You can't expect him to sweat it all out of himself by means of his learning alone. And we should make a great mistake politically if we use these normal liaisons between priest and serving wench as a weapon against them. The people see nothing wrong in it. Quite the contrary. (laughs) (laughs) That's some interesting stuff there.
0: Yes. Well, this was long, and I don't know whether we should talk about this before we go back to Rosenberg. or he's way back there. But uh, well, since we're on this uh, morals of sexuality, maybe we should discuss it. Yeah. Uh, I think. Uh, and by the way, I couldn't find anything on this page about Wilhelm II about any uh, Pacific stuff. I don't know who he was. Ruler of the Pacific. Yeah, I didn't see anything like that. So, okay. but I would like to say that you know he was young when he when he became king, and uh, he but he was very self confident. And he thought highly of himself there's there's no no doubt about that, and so right. he probably didn't take advice as well as he should have, so he was out there doing a lot of things that weren't too wise, and I guess he just kept it up anyway, enough for him um well, I was just going to
1: say uh Carolyn that the very first of this uh particular section talked about Rosenberg and his extremely high intellectual attitude towards the the party newspaper, the Volkischer oh, yeah. <laughs> when
0: yeah.
1: when he would write the editorials or have some editorials written by professors, and like Hitler says, with subjects concerning Central Asia and whatever, and Rosenberg was of a, such a high thought level and all that <clears throat> when things started being printed to appeal more to the average working Joe or, or the people who really made up the party, he felt... This was a lowering of the standards of the, the party newspaper, and it bothered him. But, as they say, sales doubled of the newspaper, and people started being more interested in it. And, you know, and that's just a case of a guy who's, uh, and I don't think it was arrogant on the part of Rosenberg at all. Oh, I no, that's was, his
0: personality. You, it's, it's you know, a, he really believed Yeah, his
1: personality. He, he was and, very and intellectual. He was so,
0: uh, yeah, he was, and so that's. That's the way he saw everything, and he he yeah, thought he the party should the express it that, that way. way. Yeah. 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 But now and, Hitler and, was uh, Hitler was always impatient with that quality in Rosenberg. He he uh, appreciated all that Rosenberg did, but uh, he always thought Rosenberg was too. Uh, and I I don't I feel I like Rosenberg so much, so I I would I always be defending him. But Hitler would sometimes, you know, make him kind of the butt of a joke or something. He did that with the number but you of you got to
1: keep, you know, you got to uh, keep in mind t- uh, certainly that uh, Hitler was so pragmatic. He he was he was whatever serves a purpose here and whatever is working. And and his his view was much wider than that of Rosenberg uh, as far as political success goes. And and yeah, sure, it served the purpose. Up, the purpose was to so
0: the yeah. elections. <laughs> You know, Just and exactly so right. uh, that's how you do it, and he realized that that's why he even went along with Julius Stryker and liked him and liked what yes. he did, because he said Julius True. Stryker was very good for the party and brought a lot you of people. to the masses. Right. Yeah, so, and, uh, and you know,
1: and him talking about the Reichstag fire, and, you know, when Hitler heard about it, he rushed down to the offices of the uh, newspaper and he said it took a half an hour to even get inside the building, and then the, the people, were,
0: you know, the, the
1: editor was sleepy-headed and couldn't understand what he was saying, and he was telling him, don't you realize such an event is happening, and, and and to get this news out and everything, and he said he finally got Goebbels down there to help him, and together they made sure the next yeah. day's issue got printed with the story of the fire at the Reichstag, and, uh, and that just indicates another talent. Uh, that the Fuhrer had, but you know, I guess the main thing to, uh, to 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 come out of all that is Rosenberg was quite the intellectual. Uh, I've read one of his books. I've got it in my library here, and
0: and I enjoyed
1: it. I, you know, gosh, my my opinion of the guy is very high. He was quite the thinker. Uh, but uh, anyway, that well,
0: he was way. He not, needed, very, not very many people. Uh, as Hitler said, uh, nobody could understand his book, so uh, right. you know what? Right. You know, not very many people are are interested in that yeah. or on that level, so yeah. it doesn't. You know, doesn't he accomplish. said even I
1: had trouble understanding some of his yeah. stuff, and my gosh, if he right. had trouble understanding some of it, I damn sure would have yeah, for sure. And then this section gets into the sexual part, and he talks about. Uh, I really like this sentence where he said it's only the women who transgress who deserve any praise. In other words, those that had affairs outside uh, their marriage and whatever that infused new blood into that family, and it was such an improvement, as as he said, uh, uh, they became the instrument for restoring new health into the veins of a degenerating family.
0: He yeah, but you, know, sense you have to, to put that in, in perspective. He wouldn't be saying that he thought that this was a good idea in general for women to go out and have affairs and uh you right, know and, right. that, that's not but what he's you know, again, he's talking about uh people he knows he says he calls it Bavaria, but he also means Austria. Uh and what he's familiar with and there's a lot of these people, they've just been marrying within themselves for so long that he thinks they, you know, they need some new blood. And so it's a good thing if these, uh, if some some of the women go out and bring in some new blood into the family without anybody calling it that, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's a healthy thing. And so he's always thinking about the health of the people, exactly. really. And and just like with the... A, yeah, just like with the Arbeite, the young National Socialist girls coming to help with the with the farming yeah. and so on. He says they come in with their lighter clothing, their sports costumes from the party or not wearing six Yeah, they're <laughs> and and uh and it's all it's all good, he says. He doesn't see anything wrong with sex and he doesn't see anything wrong with people having sex and exactly. children are born. Uh well that's fine, that's all the good, you know uh he just doesn't he doesn't like that uh, more and more I think he got to not like that overly prude uh, idea, and he blames it on the church exactly
1: He hit the nail on <laughs> yeah. the head
0: right
1: you know, and he says a healthy wave has swept over the countryside mm-hmm. and 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 then uh regarding the priest uh who was reported to have had an affair uh you know with his serving maid. And he said, you think this would raise one hell of a stink and whatever? But he said, actually, the people were very happy about it. And he said, uh, the people see nothing wrong in it, quite the contrary. They saw it as something quite natural. And, uh, you know, and, and I like to see that because, uh, well, you know, it, uh, yeah. it just makes it well, more of Well, I don't know how it person. was
0: in your family, but I know for my family, uh, extended family and so on, that it's not uh, – nobody – was ever judgmental uh, you you were supposed to cover it up and pretend like it didn't happen, but nobody was ever judgmental right. over over a couple who uh had a That's you know right. got by the time they got married they had their child in five or six months On or so way, yeah yeah and uh and there was always reasons for it and things but uh you know it wasn't like it was common but no you know just the 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 country people and the common people and uh going all the way back and certainly uh in austria where he came from and other places like that this just this was just a common thing for a girl to get to get pregnant and it still is in a lot of places so just you know and the life force uh, unless you're really uh, concentrating, like I was, because of my mother, <laughs> uh, on, you know, staying, uh, not having any accidents or anything, which I guess I wasn't going to have anyway. So, yeah, it happens because uh, nature gives young people, boys and girls, uh, a lot of hi- high sexual uh, activity. And so, yeah. you know, in those country, li- in the country lifestyle, especially, they're out there in fields and so on, and it. It comes out, and once they get to a certain point, they can't stop, you know? So Mm -hmm. that's the way it goes, and so that was...
1: Well, exactly, uh, Carolyn, and you got to keep in mind, too, that from the beginning, Hitler's uh, position on his country was, we need a high birth rate.
0: Mm-hmm. we need
1: more children.
0: Oh, yeah, sure.
1: And so, you know, he, he looked upon this sort of thing as, as part
0: of it, You too. know, the
1: taboos and all that stuff as a as a positive. And it's not that the man was immoral, certainly not at all, and condoned immorality, but no, he didn't he was, believe in condemning, you know.
0: And you know what else? What else here is that the uh, the church didn't either, you know, for all what it said that people should be doing and so on, but priests the fact that priests were not did not keep their celibacy it was, was accepted too, you know, mm-hmm. and people thought, well, you can't really expect that uh, from all these men you know the, it was the law of the church, but people didn't think that it could be it could be enforced for the same reasons that we've already given that yeah. the sexual urge is too strong, so they just overlooked it exactly. and if some woman who's uh, on a, the level of a serving girl has sex with a priest. Well, they don't see that it hurts her any because she's probably having sex with each right. other. So, <laughs> you know, it's like you just—he's uh, just going on about that, but uh, it's just true everywhere, really.
1: Sure, sure. It was a realistic approach and and a, a humane and a human approach.
0: Yeah, but you do—you don't want to just let all your standards go. And he wouldn't certainly. have been doing that. Uh, you still right. have to keep standards, keep face, and and uh, put a good face on things. You don't want it to seem like people exactly. are just out there having uh, sex with anybody, which they weren't. Right? No. All there right. So a timeline for the 21st is this right? We're on the 21st of That's August. That's correct. 21st okay. of August, midday. Sorry. Okay.
1: 21st of August, 1942, in the evening. Necessity and the taking of decisions. Patois and High German. German replaces Latin as official language. Our shorthand typist. Now, before I go into this little section here, let's talk about that word patois, P-A-T-O-I-S. I kind of grew up when I heard that uh, it referred to the, the Cajuns in Louisiana. That spoke a dialect that was a little different from what other people spoke in Louisiana. Certainly, you could uh, you could uh, understand it, but it was quite different, <clears throat> and it was considered a low form of English or a mixture of French and English and whatever. Now, uh, what is your thoughts on that word Patois, uh, Carolyn?
0: I don't have any because I just let it go. I didn't. Uh, I okay.
1: thought Patois okay. was a kind
0: of a finish, a uh, high finish on something do well, but I, don't,
1: uh, you know, I didn't think uh, of it <clears throat> well to me and i you know i may be off base but that's what i learned as a junior high you know and a uh, student and so on but and, and and when we talk about it here <clears throat> we're talking about the difference between common ordinary uh language in german versus high german and uh, mm-hmm. and as we read this, I think that definition kind of fits what is said here. So, uh, yeah, it's, know, that,
0: it's the same as dialect. I don't know why you did put dialect. That's exactly right. Like that's a, that's a the, very the good word. The definition here at Merriam-Webster is a form of language that is spoken only in a particular area and that that's is different right. from the same form of the same language. Very good. Very good. Yeah. <clears throat>
1: okay. And the Fuhrer says, if one enters a military operation with the mental reservation, caution, this may fail. Then you may be quite certain that it will fail. To force a decision, one must enter a battle with conviction of victory and the determination to achieve it, regardless of the hazards. Just imagine what would have happened if we had undertaken the Crete operations with the idea We'll have a crack at it. If it succeeds, so much the better. If it fails, we must pull out. A compatriot of mine, Stelzhammer, has written some wonderful poetry, but unfortunately in dialect. Otherwise, he would have become the literary counterpart of Bruckner. If his contemporary, Adalbert Stifter, had written in dialect, he too would not have had more than 10,000 readers. What a great loss this represents. In the same way, I always think it's a great pity when a really first-class comedian is dependent solely on, the, on dialect for his humor. He does so limit his audience thereby. Valentin, for example, can only be really appreciated in Upper Bavaria. Even in the rest of Bavaria itself, half his wit goes begging. And in Berlin, if he appeared there, he'd be a complete failure. If only he had trained himself to play in high German as well, he would have been famous everywhere long before the arrival of the great American comedians. There is a more serious aspect to all this. A foreigner spends two or three years learning German, and then he comes to Munich. The first thing that greets him is a torrent of unintelligible dialect. For the moment the good burgher of Munich realizes that he's dealing with a foreigner, he avoids high German like the plague. This fellow, he says to himself, may be a Prussian. I'll give him what for. And he persists with the purest dialect he can produce until his wretched victim is completely perplexed and driven from the field. I do my utmost to bring good German to the ears of Danes, Swedes, and Finns, and the radio blares forth dialect. I do away with the Gothic script because I, I regard it as an obstacle, and people go on spouting dialect. It doesn't make sense. I remember that one of my companions at the front came from the Algal For the first few days, he might just as well have been a Chinaman. All this may be great fun. Fritzi Reuter is a great writer, but only a small minority can read him. Where we should be if Hoffman in Hoffman von Fallersleben, had written the national anthem in dialect? Everyone should have a deep affection for his place of origin, but that alone does not suffice his allegiance should stretch beyond the confines of the parish. Are you not ashamed when you hear a well-educated Czech speak better German than many a German? To set up an imperial government, it was necessary to do violence to a large number of dialects and to introduce an official German language. Before this was done, the official language was Latin, and it probably still would be, but for this drastic measure. There is a world of difference between chanting a Mass in Latin and receiving an income tax demand in the same language. The old saying, We'll soon make you speak proper German, dates from those heroic days. It was the time when the Habsburg behaved as though they were the emperors of Germany. For hours on end, I tried to make Kroszik understand that a shorthand typist in Lammer's office was not an ordinary stenographer, but a secretary. Krozik at first, stubbornly refused to put these girls on the civil service list, in spite of the fact that the most secret documents pass continually through their hands. Clerks in the Wehrmacht are in the same boat, and they are the worst paid employees we have. In my opinion, in the grading of appointments, The importance of the duties assigned should be the determining factor. The best secretary in the world is hardly good enough for the tremendous task put upon her. She must be as swift as lightning and as silent as the grave, and all she gets is eighty or a hundred marks a month. It always infuriates me to think of a court writer sitting there scribbling slowly with a greasy bit of paper in which her cheese was wrapped beside her. The only time she ever bestirs herself is when she corrects a mistake or crosses something out. When I dictate to Fräulein Gerbeck, I know she does not take in a word of the sense of what she is noting. Fräulein Stahl, who previously worked in the Ministry of Propaganda, was very different the moment she made the slightest slip in dictation, she would moment stop.
0: Moment one made no, they get that wrong.
1: Yeah, no, it wasn't the moment made, one made, made. Yeah, the moment one made the slightest slip in dictation, she would stop, sit still, and await the correction.
0: See these sharp women. What would men do without all these sharp women serving them? Uh, you and some it. of those secretaries were no, really fantastic. <laughs> you know, <and> he, he, <laughs> he he wanted good secretaries, and he appreciated them. You know, sure. he expected them to be very good, and and of course he got the best. So, well, uh, what do you want to say about that, Ray?
1: I don't have anything. I think it kind of spoke for itself.
0: Yeah, me too. You know, I think uh, you know there's dialects and dialects, and uh, a little bit of dialect. Every every group, every area has some words that they use that aren't used That's elsewhere. True. But it's not that you can't hold a conversation perfectly well. But I think there used to be stronger dialects and and he's he's talking about people who just get get too too much that way and they don't even think about how to speak a more standard German and, and he didn't like that and I don't blame him. Doesn't doesn't right. speak well for the German people.
1: Exactly how so, you know, he says that. Mm-hmm. How does it make you feel when a Czech speaks more pure German than a German does.
0: Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, He used that for an example. So. Well, I've
0: got uh, some timelines here because this is where we're going to move okay. up, isn't it? Well, anyway, yeah. I've got, is, is this it? No, this is just the 22nd. Let me see here. This is just yeah. the 22nd. Okay, uh, on the 22nd, Brazil declares war on the Axis countries, partly in response to numerous riots by a uh, populace angry at the sinking of Brazilian ships. So I guess they got these, uh, Germany sunk some Brazilian ships, and so they, they, they got mad and declared war Declared war on Germany. And uh, Stanislaw reprisal action occurred, uh, which was after many repeated organized killings, the current head of the Judenrat, Goldstein, is publicly hanged along with 20 of the Jewish police. Jewish girls are raped. Oh, come on. I don't believe that. It's a bunch of of, uh, rumor here Uh, about a Stanislaw reprisal. And, you know, I didn't even, I didn't think to look that up. I just kind of wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to that at the time, I guess. I'll do that now. Okay. So you can go ahead. (laughs) Okay.
1: All right. We'll move on to 22nd of August, 1942, evening. Hungarian Bluff. India, the school for Britons, British policy in India, methods of colonization, the artisan at work, respect the local customs, and then Budapest. The Hungarians have always been poseurs. In war, they are like the British and the Poles. War to them is an affair which concerns the government and to which they go like oxen to the slaughter. They all wear swords, but have none of the earnest chivalry which the bearing of a sword should imply. In a book on India, which I read recently, it was said that India educated the British and gave them their feeling of superiority. The lesson begins in the street itself. Anyone who wastes even a moment's compassion on a beggar is literally torn to pieces by the beggar hordes. Anyone who shows a trace of human sentiment is damned forever. From these origins springs that crushing contempt for everything that is not British, which is a characteristic of the British race, hence the reason why the typical Briton marches ahead, superior, disdainful, and oblivious to everything around him. If the British were ever driven out of India, the repercussions will be swift and terrible. In the end, the Russians will reap the benefit. However miserably the inhabitants of India may live under the British, they will certainly be no better off if the British go. Opium and alcohol bring in 22.5 million sterling to the British exchequer every year. Anyone who raises his voice in protest is regarded as a traitor to the state and dealt with accordingly. We Germans, on the contrary, will all go on smoking our pipes while at the same time compelling the natives of our colonies to abandon the horrors of nicotine. Britain does not wish to see India overpopulated. It is not in her interest. On the contrary, she would rather see a somewhat sparse population if we were to occupy India the very first preoccupation of our administration, administrators would be to set up countless commissions to inquire into the conditions of every aspect of human activity with a <coughs> view to their amelioration. Our universities, full of solicitude for the welfare of the natives, would immediately open sister organizations all over the country, and we would finish up by quickly proving that India as a civilization older than our own. The Europeans are all vaccinated and so are immune from the dangers of the various epidemics. The owner of a plantation knows that it it is in his own interest to prevent the outbreak of disease among his coolies, but, well, perhaps it is, after all, better to content oneself with a little less profit and not to interfere with the normal course of nature. I have just been reading some books which every German going abroad should be compelled to read. The first of them is Alsdorf's book, which should be read by every diplomat. According to it, it was not the British who taught Indians evil ways. When the first white men landed in the country, they found the walls surrounding many of the towns were constructed of human skulls. Equally, it was not Cortez who brought cruelty to the Mexicans, it was there before he arrived. The Mexicans indeed indulged in extensive human sacrifice, and when the Spirit moved them, would sacrifice as many as 20,000 human beings at a time. In comparison, Cortez was a moderate man. There's no need whatever to go rushing around the world making the native more healthy than the white man. Some people I know are indignant at the sale of shoddy cotton goods to the natives. What, pray, do they suggest that we should give them pure silk? In Russia, we must construct centers for the collection of grain in the vicinity of all railway stations to facilitate transportation to the West. The Ukrainian mark must also be tied to the Reichsmark at a rate rate of exchange to be fixed later. Rosenberg wishes to raise the cultural level of the local inhabitants by encouraging their pension for wood carving. I disagree. I would like Rosenberg to see what sort of trash is sold in my own countryside to pilgrims. And it's no good saying, what rubbish. Saxon industries must also live. I once knew a Saxon woman who sold printed handkerchiefs in each corner was the picture of a famous man, Hindenburg in one corner, Ludendorff in another, myself in a third, and in the fourth, her own husband. (laughs) Every time I visit the permanent exhibition of German crafts, I get angry. In the first place, the furniture exhibited is simply a bad joke, as is also the method of indicating the prices. One sees, for example, a label with RM800, and one assumes naturally that it applies to the whole suite. And one then finds that the bench, which the the, bench, the picture, and the curtain are not included. And the last straw is that these trashy articles claim to represent a form of art, uh, a form of art styled popular, the art of our small independent craftsmen. In reality, the public are not interested. When the man in the street pays 1,200 marks for something, he expects value for his money, and he doesn't care a rap about whether the nails have been driven in by machine or by hand. Honestly, what do we mean when we say the work of a craftsman? Why buy furniture in plain unvarnished wood when the furniture industry will give you beautiful furniture, polished to perfection, For the same money. In Stortz's shop, for example. I've seen excellent furniture, which modest people would be delighted to possess. Arts and crafts, rubbish. If a nigger delights in wearing a pair of cuffs and nothing else, why should we interfere with him? I've been reading tales of the burning of corpses at Benares. If we were out there our hygiene experts would rise in their wrath and institute a crusade backed by the most rigorous penalties to suppress this evil practice. Every day, official chemists would come and analyze the river water, and in no time a new and gigantic ministry of health would be set up. The British, on the other hand, have contented themselves with forbidding the immolation of widows. The Indians can think themselves lucky that we do not rule India. We should make their lives a misery. Just think of it, 200 yards downstream of the place where they pitch the half-burned bodies of their dead into the Ganges, they drink the river water. Nobody ever takes any harm from it, but would we stand for a thing like that? The inhabitants of Budapest have remained faithful to their river and are rightly proud of two things, the beautiful monuments and buildings which adorn the surrounding hillsides and the marvelous bridges which span the Danube. It is a wonderful city and one of immense wealth. Its background consisted of Croatia, Slovakia, Bosnia, and Herzegovina. All the plutocratic magnates poured their wealth into Budapest. After the 1848 Revolution, all the main thoroughfares of the city were rebuilt, twice the width of those in Vienna. I sent all the Berlin architects to Paris to seek inspiration there for the improvement of their own city. Three bridges are always cheaper than 55 streets. I'm only sorry I never saw the new bridge at Cologne. It must have been marvelous. Interesting.
0: Oh yeah, and, you know, that that's kind of sad because uh, obviously uh a, a new bridge had been built in Cologne and then that, you know, Cologne was bombed so badly and it must have been um destroyed. You know, the most notable right. attack on Cologne was the first Allied 1000 bomber raid on 30 and 31st May 1942. So that had taken place not long before this this discussion um, in, in May of this year, and, and that was that big, horrible 1,000 bomber raid. Boy, the pictures of Cologne after it had, you know, at the end of the war. Yeah. just Talk about flattened, flattened it's like Dresden. Yeah, really, and then, uh, and now it's all rebuilt and everything. I never, got, I haven't been to Cologne, but <clears throat> anyway, that's, uh, yeah, this is, uh, well, again, you know, I like the part about the crafts, because I know that Hitler is not a fan of, and, you know, that was a real national, not a fan of that so much, and that was a real National Socialist thing. And starting in the 20s, you know, that was a big project of the National Socialist Party to reach out to all the people, the folk, you know, and uh, all, all in the countryside and small towns and small places and so on. In fact, when uh, Willie Crispin was in the Hitler Youth, his group was going to the uh, little villages around there and uh, spending time uh, encouraging crafts and folk art and so on, and they put on puppet shows. That was supposed to be a big German type of thing, puppet shows. And there is a big uh, history of that. And all of this was going on, but, you know, here it shows that Hitler... Um, tolerated all that. You know, he didn't stop any of it at the time. But now, in, all, all the way in 1942, and uh, times have changed so much, and he's saying uh, he doesn't see the point <laughs> of all this all this crafts, uh, all this unfinished uh, furniture, and, you know, it's not as good as what, what, what they make. In the, and there's a lot of truth to that. You know, there's a lot of wood carving that goes on. My father was, I remember my father buying... Uh, wood carving thing not in Germany somewhere in the U.S. and always thought so highly of it you know but to me I knew it was just average kind of you know stuff I mean it was and people admire the skill which is to be admired but the result is not anything uh if you know like great uh, like art or anything um it's a little bit sort of on the corny side so that's that's what he's saying there I thought uh it was kind of humorous anyway and just it just shows how everything's not just, everybody's not all on the same page. And Rosenberg was still on that page or thought that that was important, you know, because Rosenberg was a real national socialist. I mean, par- a party man and, and uh, and you know, kind of, and Hitler was a more free thinker about all of it, really. He 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 was exactly. trying to build a party and gain power. He wasn't so much into all that other stuff, Um that that some of them were so it's, it's uh it's interesting what else is here
1: well uh-huh. the thing that got me uh carolyn on this mm-hmm. uh, particular section came early and uh in it when uh he's talking about on the book of india which i read recently mm-hmm. uh it is said that india educated the british and gave them their feeling of superiority and then right here the lesson begins in the street itself Anyone who wastes even a moment's compassion on a beggar is literally torn to pieces by the beggar hordes, and anyone who <laughs> shows a trace of human sentiment is damned forever. And that is so very, very true because people who are on the receiving end of that see that as a sign of weakness. And, Absolutely. And, you know, and and or and then, and then that,
0: you know. Just, well, yeah, you know. and
1: it's and it's magnified here uh, just a couple of paragraphs past that, where he says, uh, "After all, uh, it is perhaps it is better to content oneself with a little less profit, and not so and and not to interfere with the normal course of nature." And he was talking there about vaccinations. Europeans are all vaccinated and are immune to the dangers of the various epidemics, and the owner of a plantation knows that it's in his best his own interest to prevent the outbreak of disease among his coolies, but, well, perhaps it is, after all, better to content oneself with a little less profit and not to interfere with the normal course of nature, meaning that if his coolies, meaning his manual laborers and whatever get sick and whatever and they die, this is a normal course of events. And for you to step in and vaccinate and interfere with the normal course of nature In the long run, this is a negative. And, uh, you know, and I think he's certainly right. And and I I think you you apply that to today's uh, Africa, for instance. All this aid and tons of food and rushed over to this starving element. And and I'm not demeaning those people or anything. Uh, I don't think of them in that way. But I think that, you know, nature is going the way it is supposed to go and when man interferes and jumps in there with vaccinations and tons of food and these 200,000 natives that were supposed to die off are preserved and and they breed more and more and so mm-hmm. the uh the wildlife suffers because they're going to be more of them slaughtered there's going to be more of the environment that suffers uh and, and so you know I think it's a I like to think it's a national socialist viewpoint that let nature take its course and don't interfere. And uh, and so that's that's what this little section meant to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. Well, I could tell some stories about that, about beggars in Mexico. And, you know, well, just real quick, if you uh, go to a nice beach, you know, a famous beach even, you know, and and a beautiful place, and then there's all these... Uh, little, uh, people selling stuff. And they come over right. to where you're on the beach, and, uh, and they're not stopped. They're not kept away because in Mexico, even in, in hotels and stuff, in Mexico, they, they have something that everybody has a right to go everywhere, and that's their democracy, that's right. and these, all these poor people have to make a living some way because nobody's helping them. So they come with their, you know, want to show you what they've got, you know. And if you, uh, and you say no, go away. And then they, you know, you have to keep doing that. But if you should look at some of it by somebody, boy, then all the rest of them are going to follow after that one, and uh, you're never going to be left alone. So it's just uh, ridiculous. Yeah.
1: True. And, and, you know, these two words I underlined, Carolyn, in this little passage, and one of them was compassion and the other was sentiment, which our race is – is uh, abounds with that sort of feeling, and and uh, and I think it's because we have a more wide or uh, more wide world viewpoint or whatever. But those two uh, uh, emotions, com- compassion and sentiment, are seen as such a, a negative thing, and it's hard for us, uh, you know, and some people listening to tonight's show and what we've said may think, you know. These people are hard-hearted and whatever, but that's the way of survival. That's the way it has to be. And you know we look at television and we see uh, on these nature programs and, and we see predator and prey and we, and we see a, uh, a leopard chasing down uh, a fawn uh, of an antelope and and we're hoping I hope that little guy gets away and, and then back the scene is shown back in the leopard's den and there's three cubs. And if mama doesn't make the kill, they die. And, and and yet we're, you know, we naturally have the compassion to hope that, oh, my, I hope this little animal gets away. But let nature go as it should. Man is the interloper. And, and that's what I like a lot about uh, Adolf Hitler and his way of thinking was
0: well, things happen was just,
1: the way they're supposed to happen. He realized and, it, and
0: he wasn't afraid to say it. A lot of people can realize the truth of that, but they won't open their mouth about it. Oh no, you know, because they're afraid they'll be judged. Right. That's 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 the difference with him. Um, You know, he was willing to say what needed to be said. Well, let's we got uh, okay, we've got this little short one. uh, Let's finish this because I've got it in my in my notes. Exactly.
1: Okay. Now this is the one where I uh, was saying at the beginning of our show, uh, Carolyn, that. It probably should be dated either twenty third or twenty fourth, but it's dated twenty second of August, uh, nineteen forty two, in the evening. Just well, I'm going to change it
0: to twenty
1: third. Yeah. Okay, I did too. All right. Okay. Special guest, undersecretary, excuse me, undersecretary of state Bakke and Captain Top T O P P. The Bolshevization of Europe. Lloyd George of Great Britain. Remorseless warfare. Had he been given time, Stalin would have made of Russia a super-industrialized monster, completely contrary to the interests of the masses, but justified by demagogic pedantry and designed to raise the standard of life for his own particular partisans. His final objective would have been the absorbing of the whole of Europe into the Bolshevik ring. He's a beast, but he's a beast on on the grand scale. He made use of the Jews to eliminate the intelligentsia of the Ukraine, and then exported the Jews by trainloads to Siberia. I think it quite possible that he will go off to China when he sees no other way of escape open to him. The Briton who made the deepest impression on me was Lloyd George. Eden speaks a repulsive, affected type of English, but Lord George was a pure orator, a man of tremendous breadth of vision. What he has written on the Treaty of Versailles will endure forever. He was the first man to declare that this treaty would lead inevitably to another war. The idea that a people like the German people can be destroyed is madness, he said. Britain, he added, had no alternative but to live on terms of friendship with Germany. That events have taken a different course is the fault of the Zentrum, the Catholic Party. The Social Democrats were opposed to the policy, and thus Scheidemann's hand was forced. We have only ourselves to think that the British quickly realized in the First World War that war is a day and night non-stop affair, we ourselves taught them that. Left to themselves, they would have ordered that all firing should cease punctually at five o'clock. And then, to their indignation, our bloody batteries went on firing. And what batteries we had! One fine day, they even succeeded in making the Briton forsake his beloved tea to retaliate. And then, gradually, in the evening peace began to be a thing. Of the, uh, the evening peace began to be a thing of the past. Then we had other batteries that fired all night, and again they were forced to do likewise. And in this war in this way, war soon became a rotten sort of game, and of course it was all our fault. If 500,000 cigarette ends are thrown away in Berlin on a Sunday, one of them will start a fire somewhere. We dropped incendiaries galore on the Wester plot. And there was not a single fire. In the Reich Chancellery, I find the marks of the smoker everywhere on the, all the carpets and all the furniture. I wonder why the British have suddenly stopped using incendiaries.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, uh, uh Carol, I was only going to say, and, and the date on this is August 22nd, 1942, and that last question he asked. I wonder why the British have suddenly stopped using incendiaries, and and I thought the first thing that struck me was fear of retaliation. But it, well, I don't you know, think they
0: did stop using them. They just hadn't used them for a while, I guess.
1: Right, and and they certainly turned to them in 1944 and five.
0: So uh, I don't know. He just uh, must have been, he must have noticed that they hadn't been doing so much for a while. Maybe they hadn't been doing as much bombing for a little bit of time. But they were getting ready for their, what do you call, firestorm system. Yes, that's right. But you know, when he mentions the Westerplatte here, that of course was this on the coast of Poland, a big area, and the first uh, battle in the invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939, was there, and the German naval forces and, and the uh, ground forces assaulted the Polish military transit depot there. It was in the harbor of the free city of Danzig. And it took them, though, the depot was manned by fewer than 200 Polish soldiers, but they held out for seven days in the face of a heavy attack of the Germans that included dive bombers. They And that's considered the most heroic thing that Poland did during the war, and it's their, you know, they remember it with a lot of uh, fervor and so on that they held out that long. Right, but I think it's well, funny that Hitler is uh, is looking around the. Uh, he notices in the chancellery, which he was very proud of his new chancellery, that there are cigarette burns uh, Burn on marks. the furniture and the carpet. And you know, he always said that those uh, his uh, National Socialist uh, officers and people and so on, they all smoked and everything, and they were careless, and he didn't like that because he wasn't that way. And so I think that's real funny that uh, you know that he's noticing that almost like a. Almost like a woman who's looking Act. after her house and doesn't, doesn't like all that stuff going on. Absolutely. I <laughs> wouldn't about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the most important thing out of this short section, and I know we're running very short of time, was uh, his remarks. To me, uh, his remarks about David Lloyd George was a thinker. Uh, wow. and, and he says that uh, Lloyd George says Britain had no alternative but to live on terms of friendship. With Germany, I kind of liken that to uh, to Edward VIII. Had he remained mm-hmm. in power or whatever in England rather than stepping down, he could have been a force that may have stopped the insanity that resulted in World War II.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it was so anyway, George that's what I have that? to say. I mean, he was pretty old, wasn't he? Uh, he Edward VIII? No, well, boy, he, he wasn't.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, Maybe, uh, yeah. You're World
0: exactly War II. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: certainly. And Edward VIII is one that, and the big story of, of why he left office, which was phony, was to marry the American lady and to abdicate and, and marry. Uh, what is it, Wallace Simpson or whatever her mm-hmm. name was? Yeah. And, and but that that was because he was facing so much opposition. He was very pro-German and thought it's, it would be a, a stupid mistake for us to fight each other and. Unfortunately, his views did not prevail. He was forced out.
0: But, yeah, uh, I read just recently that that was just a the pretext they used, that he could exactly. not be married to a divorcee. And, and then the yeah. person who wrote that said uh, that Prince Charles is married to a divorcee right now, but nobody exactly. said that he can't be king for that reason. But maybe that's part of the reason that his mother doesn't want him to be king and is trying to hold off and, and uh, go directly to William. She doesn't want Charles to be king. So maybe he won't ever be king. But that's a, you know, if he is, then you have to say, well, he's married to this divorced woman. Well, maybe then they've uh, they've liberalized their policies. Correct. That's what they'll say. Well, we have come to the end of our show for tonight, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. And, Ray, why don't you just sign us out? Well, I did
1: too, Carolyn. I I thought tonight was just another fascinating uh, issue, uh, uh, you know, a fascinating uh, lesson. And looking forward to next week, folks. We'll be right back here on uh, March nineteenth, and please join us again. We're going to have another fascinating show. Good
0: night. Good night, everyone.